The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, I interview someone who's been a part of the KPFK family for many years. That's Alan Minsky, who is also the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. So stay tuned. Here are some headlines from this morning as well as over the weekend. There are at least 14,634,911 cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. and at least 281,513 people have died. This is according to data from the Johns Hopkins University. Half of California is under lockdown orders. The state's most populous counties are ordered under the lockdown because hospital ICUs are filling up too rapidly and dangerously. In planning documents sent last week to public health agencies around the country, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention described preparations for two coronavirus vaccines they refer to simply as Vaccine A and Vaccine B. The technical details of the vaccines, including the time in between doses and their storage temperatures, match well with the two vaccines furthest along in clinical tests in the U.S. made by Moderna and Pfizer. A CDC panel last week agreed how COVID-19 vaccines should be distributed, but it is unclear when they will be available in the U.S. There are expected to be enough doses to immunize 20 million people by the end of the month, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said Wednesday at a briefing for Operation Warp Speed, the government's effort to fast-track a vaccine. Republican Lieutenant Governor of the Southern State said on Sunday that Donald Trump's attacks on Republican officials in Georgia and insistence that his defeat by Joe Biden must be overturned are disgusting. At a certain point, does this disgust you? Oh, absolutely, it disgusts me. I mean, we've all, all of us in this position have got increased security around us and our families, and, and it's not American, it's not what democracy is all about, but it's reality right now. And uh, so we're going to continue to do our jobs. Governor Kemp, uh, Brad Raffensperger, and myself, all three voted and campaigned for the president. But unfortunately, he didn't win the state of Georgia. But it doesn't change our job descriptions. And, and Jake, you know, the, the troubling part to this is I think short term, this chaos creates some doubt around January 5th. And are we going to get enough Republicans to show up to vote? But longer term, I, I think it, it, it potentially hurts our message as we try to figure out where do we go from here as a Republican Party? Where do we go with a GOP 2.0, right? How do we recognize the wins that President Trump had for us over the last four years? And how do we look forward about how do we message better, right? We, we've got to find a platform more than 280 characters to message. Um, we also got to tackle some of these big issues, right? Immigration reform. Uh, here's an opportunity, you know, build the wall is a great project name, but it's not necessarily a policy. Um, as we talk about healthcare, for decades, healthcare has been decided in partisan corners. Americans who need health care and need access to health care don't care about partisan corners when they're in the emergency room mm -hmm. or when they're trying to make a payment uh, at the end of the month. They want real results. And, and I think that's where the Republican Party is going to go from this point on. It is not American, Jeff Duncan said to CNN's State of the Union. It's not what democracy is all about, but it's reality now. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk to you about what in the media world, especially in publishing and news called separation of church and state. And what that means is that the editorial department of a newspaper, a news magazine, should not be considering anything coming from the publishing department, the sales and advertising and all of that. And several newspapers in the States have a very strict policy and they are usually talked about. And uh, people talk about them as examples of being very careful that the journalists are not 
influenced in any way by uh, some sort of a monetary compensation, not just for themselves, but for the company as a whole. For example, you know, BP could not pay the Washington Post you know, $5 million for you know, great editorial supporting their efforts in um, offshore drilling. Uh, that just won't happen. Now, with a newspaper that's not as reputable, they could go in and offer to get maybe a two-year contract for advertising and spend, you know, half a million, a million, and uh, have kind of a verbal and handshake with the publisher that, um, you know, in the next two years, we would like to uh, get some good editorial pass as well. And that's been done um, throughout, and uh, everyone's known it for the most part. But so lately, I've noticed this uh, trend a lot more, and I, and I think I know why, because advertising revenues have been uh, dropping drastically for well over a decade, and newspapers and magazines, and now networks even, are trying to survive by doing subscription-based, etc. But bottom line is they're making a lot less money. And so it's easier to manipulate uh, media. You know, and it's, as I said, with the, with the ad by example, you, you know, bribery is not necessarily the old school. You take a bag of, you know, cash and, and drop it on their desk. Uh, bribery and uh, sort of a mutually beneficial agreement usually is, we'll buy this much ads from you if you give us this many positive editorials. So, you know, there are newspapers and news magazines that are very ethical, and, and this cannot be done. They will, you know, the first thing they'll tell you is separation of church and state, but not everyone. Now, a perfect example of this is the recent hiring of six lobbying and PR firms in D.C. by the government of Azerbaijan. Now, some of you know that uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey on September 27th uh, attacked Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, which has been a part of Armenia for millennia, a genocidal war that they waged ethnic cleansing horror stories. And there are uh, some really terrible videos on YouTube of the, of the tortures and beheadings and such by Azerbaijani and Turkish forces. So what happened was Azerbaijan and Turkey were planning to, for this attack, and they had hired these firms in D.C. to make sure that the media narrative is sort of tilted their way and that they get better, better coverage. And of course... That can't be done because the record speaks for itself. The Turkey's brutal history and its current oppression of the uh, Kurdish people, among others, it's, uh, it's notorious. And Azerbaijan has endless oil money, so, uh, and they spend it to manipulate media and such. But following the attack, I was very surprised that some other, otherwise reputable media companies had such terrible editorial coverage. And uh, the facts weren't there. Uh, they were either omitted or uh, they were sort of copied from the Azerbaijani and Turkish uh, propaganda playbook. And I have to call them out. One of them is New York Times, who's done this several times. Also BBC, there was an interview with one of the officials and BBC just got so many things wrong. And CNN as well. Um, Christiana Mampur, who I've admired for a long time, did a very terrible interview with uh, the president of Armenia. In it, she was very biased, and it was very obvious. As a journalist, one should at least not show it on camera. But either way, it became very clear soon after the attack that, that media had been manipulated, at least the important, important and uh, reputable ones that most people at least think are reputable, have been manipulated, and how many people were working between D.C., New York, and L.A. for these lobbying efforts, and how millions were spent by Azerbaijan to influence U.S. and international media. And thankfully, some journalists do their homework, and they go deeper, and uh, that's changed a lot more 
a lot more organizations are really reporting the facts, including the many, many beheadings that are captured on video. Uh, I can't even imagine how many more there are that were not captured. So yeah, money, you know, we've talked about money in politics for a long time, but money in media is also very, very dangerous. And one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of KPFK is that it's commercial free. And, um, you know, you can't just buy into any better uh, media coverage. So there you have it. I am sort of calling out the industry that I'm in, but that's what we have to do and we should do. Because just like, you know, me calling out Cher, someone I, I love and admire, uh, we also have to call out the industries that we are in when, when ethics and boundaries are pushed. So there you have it. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Alan Minsky is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. He's a lifelong activist who has worked as a progressive journalist for the last two decades. Alan was the program director at KPFK from 2009 to 2018. Before that, Alan was one of the founders of LA Indie Media. He's the creator and producer of the political podcasts for The Nation and Jacobin Magazine, as well as contributor to Common Dreams and Truth Dig. Alan's activism began in college with union solidarity in opposition to the U.S. involvement in Central America. In the 90s and early 2000s, Alan was active in the counter-globalization and media democracy movements. In 2011, he began organizing for Occupy Wall Street in the months leading up to the occupation of Zuccotti Park. Alan is a committed anti-racist and feminist. He's also an advocate for economic policies that address social inequality, eradicate poverty, and prioritize the interests of the working and middle-class households. Alan began working with PDA in 2014. Hello, Alan Minsky. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. How are you this morning? I'm pretty good. Great to talk with you, Vic. Well, it's my pleasure to talk to you. You are a, an iconic person at KPFK Pacifica and beyond, and um, I would really like your opinion, your commentary, analysis on where we are as a country as we are about to end this tumultuous year, to say the least. Yeah, it's been it's been something that's just been crazy. I do think there was a slight moment of redemption that occurred in the days after November 3rd as Joe Biden pulled ahead yeah. <laughs> in not just the popular vote by a substantial margin, but also by uh, in the states necessary for him to win in the Electoral College. And it does look right now that in spite of Trump's best efforts, uh, nothing really is going to make any impact on the Electoral College vote. Joe Biden will be elected by the Electoral College, and he'll be inaugurated um, uh, January 20th, uh, 2021. Uh, and I also think what also should be said there, too, is that something else happened that was pretty exceptional across the middle of the year, which was the participation in the general election. It shattered all records. Uh, and, of course, going into the general election, uh, PDA and many other organizations, we were so uncertain about what kind of turnout there would be because of uh, the pandemic, exactly how the results would be processed. But at least in this instance, American democracy passed the test. I think what remains very, very frightening for the prospects of American democracy going forward is that the now opposition tendency, at least opposition in terms of the White House uh, tendency, the Republican Party uh, is uh, pretty committed to some pretty strong anti-democratic positions. Uh, and Donald Trump, of course, is widely anticipated to run in 2024. And quite frankly, in the, over the last six months even, uh, he has clearly um, now positioned himself as a pretty much strictly anti-democratic politician. That's with a small d. Uh, and we haven't seen anything like that, certainly not with somebody who's ever been president in the United States before. And uh, it really challenges the whole uh, conception of the relationship between individuals and government in the United States of America. 
pretty much individuals to themselves in our society. This is a, you know, famously a society for all of its failings historically. That's the oldest constitutional republic in the world. It really is the beacon of democracy because of that, even again, with the very failings that have been prominent with American democracy and, and with its advocacy around the world as well. But, uh, you know, this is, this is a real threat to the fabric of, uh, you know, who we are as a society and, and how we live in the society, the idea that we would no longer be a democratic society, that a minoritarian political tendency would secure its grip on power and then chip away at democratic institutions. This is the Trump position, and it's embraced by, uh, tragically, tens of millions of Americans. Yeah, that was well said. Thank you. I'm very dense, so I want to kind of break it down and ask you a little bit more specific questions. One is more just the comment that I'm fascinated that even yesterday I wrote a, I mean, I read a, it was a tweet for, by Giuliani still challenging the election. It's just absurd that at this point they are still fighting it, although several Trump-appointed judges have had scathing reports about it saying there's zero credibility to any claim that there was fraud involved. So I'm just fascinated that they're still beating this dead horse. The other thing you you said is that, I mean, I've heard that Trump is, you know, he said that he's planning to run in 2024, but you said that it's credible. And so do you really think that he's going to do that? Well, he's not young, of course, uh, and he there's reason to believe he's not that healthy, but he is full of energy. And uh, I think we have to prepare for that prospect. And, you know, for the time being, at least, that's ball in the Republicans' court. Ball in the Democrats' court is 2022, uh, which does not set up well for the Democrats, though there will be, even if the results in Georgia are not what the Democrats are hoping for, not what I'm hoping for, what PDA is hoping for, which is that we'll have um, victories in Georgia and we'll have the Senate in the hands of the Democrats, which is hugely, hugely important both for any agenda that an incoming administration will pursue, but also for all the reasons of disempowering Mitch McConnell and then uh, the judges that get appointed. Just even there, we should all be, uh, in my opinion, doing what we can to, to see that Ossoff and Warnock win in Georgia. But um, in 2022, there are two Senate seats held by Republicans that are opening up in swing states in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Other than that, most of the states that Republicans hold are pretty safe. So as we get closer to 2022, expect to hear a lot about the Senate races in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, um, whatever the way the Georgia um, races break. But then in the House of Democrats, House of Representatives, sorry, uh, the majority is now razor thin. It's going to be either 222. You need 218 for a majority. And it's going to be 222, 223, or 224, and likely 222. And as you know, uh, the tendency is for the party that holds the White House to lose seats. And nothing was done in the 2020 census year election to change the gerrymandering schemes of the Republican Party. So I'm sure if there's already a betting line on it, the bet is that uh, the Democrats would lose the House in, in 2022. But there are ways to prevent that. And that's really where I think we're going to be very soon. Once we still get through, uh, of course, getting Joe Biden inaugurated, getting Donald Trump out of the White House. And then obviously he is he is absolutely abrogating his responsibility as any kind of elected official, let alone president of the United States, since the election when it comes to really the greatest social crisis, um, arguably, that we've had in my lifetime, which is the pandemic and the attendant economic crisis. So Biden will have a lot to do right there. I think the public will embrace him. Uh, but then, you know, by November 2022, the way history works these days, um, there's going to be a lot that the Democrats are going to be seen as accountable for. And um, I think there has to be some really good governance and some some good delivery of policies that will um, create what would be an upset, which would be the Democrats holding on to the House in 2022. This is The Blunt Post with Vic I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Alan Minsky, the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. 
I have so many questions to ask you. Before I move on to the road ahead, if you will, 2021, I want to ask you one more thing about the election. As the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America, are you satisfied? Like if from a scale of one to 10, where are you with what happened from the White House to Senate to House, regional and local? Well, with the presidency, of course, um, the once um, our favored primary candidate was was not in the running, Bernie Sanders, um, and Joe Biden was clearly going to be the nominee. Of course, the the only thing that was necessary was defeating Donald Trump. So they're in, you know, somewhere between an eight, nine, or a ten. Everywhere else, pretty pretty poor results. And I think actually one of the key aspects of the 2020 election at the end of the day that I think is below the radar screen and all the analysis you see, if I was to point to one thing that was a sort of extracurricular contributing factor to the results as it turned out, was the Republican Party's voter registration drive across the summer, which completely outperformed the Democrats. Um, It's a widely held view that demographics are such that it's the Democratic Party that um, would benefit from voter registration drives because they have uh, under-registered components of of their coalition communities that make up their coalition. And that's true. And that the Republican Party was a very well-oiled machine and already achieved, uh, you know, a very heavy level of registration of potential Republican voters. And I think the Trump phenomenon showed that that wasn't true. I think they recognized it and they mobilized and they achieved incredible voter registration across the summer. And they did it uh, first by recognizing that with the Trump base, uh, you actually now had a pool of Republican voters who, unlike the traditional, you know, whatever, Chamber of Commerce, Country Club, Republican set, suburban Republican voter, you had um, um, an under-registered pool of, of potential Republican voters, and they tapped into it. And then, um, and that, by the way, makes things particularly dire for for 2022 again looking forward because now there's an even larger pool of registered republicans than there had been previously but you know of course the democrats did match that uh they didn't overperform they probably underperformed and again the other component of that registration drive and why the republicans did better is of course the still unfolding severe tragedy that the republican party refuses to acknowledge the reality of the pandemic they went door to door uh the democrats were much more cautious and the Republicans outregistered Democrats across the summer. Yeah, something that we didn't expect because we we were very optimistic about the fact that the Democratic Party was trying to register a lot of people who had not been registered or been sort of um, disfranchised, as well as the younger, you know, younger new voters. But to hear that Republicans outdid the Democrats, it's, it's surprising to say the least. Yeah, and this was something that really Democrats became aware of about three to four weeks before the election, or at least it started to circulate past maybe other people who were aware of it across the summer. And I think this is one of the reasons we saw there were a number of people who voted across the country uh, who voted for Joe Biden and then voted for Republicans down ticket. Mm-hmm. And so the results across Of course, particularly disappointing and doesn't get a lot of attention or necessary attention is the failure to flip state legislatures. 31 out of the 50 states determine their congressional districts, and I believe also all of their state assembly and state senate districts, through the legislatures themselves drawing up the maps. 19 of the states do not. Uh, They use some more scientific method or they have nonpartisan um, bodies that decide the, the way the districts look, which is what California does. Um, and of those 19, they're disproportionately Democratic hold st- held states. And of the 31, they're overwhelmingly the Republican held legislatures. Uh, why? Because the Republican Party does recognize that they need to cheat to win and to be competitive in the House of Representatives, which, of course, is supposed to be the body that is more reflective of how the overall population feels relative to the Senate. And they've actually twisted it. So it's probably even less so than the Senate. I mean, you have states right now, like Louisiana, where Cedric Ritzman is going to enter the administration and people will recognize it's the only democratically held district in Louisiana. And then you look at the district. What have they done? They've incorporated both downtown New Orleans or central New Orleans and central Baton Rouge. They've winded this district to include, um, you know, a heavily African-American district so that 
all of the other five seats in a state that should at least be four to two, not five to one. And this happens all over the country where Republicans hold the state legislature. You know, you have a district that's now going to vote 90 percent Democrat and the Republicans are safely at 65, 35 in all the districts. This is going on in Ohio and uh, Texas is unbelievable when you look at the way the districts are drawn. Uh, So um, unfortunately, the Democrats were hoping to flip state legislatures to change this, even potentially change it permanently, but certainly change it for the next 10 years. And they failed to do so. And that was that's a. A huge loss. So I'd have to give them a below five rating on all of the other elections that you've described. O- only really out across the country and not here in California uh, did the Democrats do well on some significant ballot initiatives, or rather, shall I say, progressives, Democrats in that regard. Thanks for that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Alan Minsky, the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. So let me ask you this, you know, I have to be blunt. Well, what's on President-elect Joe Biden's plate is just immense. It's so overwhelming. Do you think he's up for the challenge? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think he is. Um, I think, however, there are a lot of competing forces within the Democratic Party. Um, I don't think that we'll see any um not only from the president, but of course, from the administration, all the people he appoints, I think there'll be a great degree of energy. There'll be, um, you know, even if for the people who don't share my politics within the Democratic Party on the left wing of the party, the progressive wing of the party, um, I do believe, like you look at someone like Blinken coming in at the State Department, you know, uh, there's a lot I don't agree with Blinken on foreign policy about. There's a lot of foreign wars that he supported that I vehemently opposed and oppose. Um, but he is tasked with rebuilding a State Department, rebuilding American diplomacy, and I think he'll bring a ton of energy to it. And Joe Biden, um, you know, there were a few things he was very well positioned to achieve. And, and you know, one of the things is people maybe, you know, people now are going to obviously start thinking a lot more about Joe Biden as, uh, you know, a, a president and administrator. And I think they'll realize he is somebody from the five, actually, if you count it decade by decade, since we're into the 20s, he's been there six decades, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughts, teens and 20s now. Uh, He really knows a policy. He really knows how the operation of the state works uh, in all areas on so many different Senate committees that he led across his career. So he knows how all the bureaucracies function. And um, he seems wholly attentive to these things and um, and quite sharp and, 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 and intentional in what he's doing. Um, and, of course, this is a, my my central talking point as the ED of Progressive Democrats of America. What I think is unfortunate is, you know, I think he'll he'll really work to emphasize the rebuilding back up of the operation of government, which is good and necessary for the society, both internationally and domestically, from the way it was all eroded under Trump. You know, environmental regulations that he took away will be put in place. And there's other things he can do by executive order that will be great. But uh, the problem, I think, is all of that energy, which I think will be uh, important and and is necessary, will not necessarily change things for the average household. In fact, in that regard, while there haven't there have only been a few, um, you know, very unnerving and somewhat upsetting appointments, generally the appointments have actually been, you know, I would say slightly a step or two to the left of where Obama's appointments were. And that's because of the strength of the progressive wing of the party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a few more progressives in the economic team have been named so far than were named at the beginning of the Obama administration when we were, after all, in the throes of a massive economic crisis at that hour you know, when Obama came in. But um, still, it, these are not figures filling administration posts who are going to set out to uh, change things in the way that I think the American public needs. Now, the silver lining for the performance of the Biden administration for uh, the 2022 midterms is is the ferocity of the pandemic uh, and and also the, the uh, attendant economic crisis. And I do think that, that they, I think they know enough to be, obviously they're going to be attentive to the science and probably do quite brilliantly. Uh, and this is, of course, couldn't be, nothing could be more important. And I, I applaud this as much as I can, they'll they'll be attentive to the science. They'll hire scientists. They'll, I think, you know, they'll be responsive to public pressure, even to see the distribution of vaccines to communities that, if it was all done just on you know economic advantage, which is 
<laughs> the default position of our healthcare system. The vaccine wouldn't be distributed evenly. I think they'll be much better about that than the general American healthcare system is, and they might even be very good about it globally. I hope they will, and I think they probably will be. So all that's great. And I also think that they see the economy as rotten enough that there'll be some, they'll try to motivate stimulus. And here in the Senate seats, of course, are very, very, very important. If we do into Senate seats in Georgia, and I really wish they could run on this a little bit more in a heightened sense, um, but, you know, they might, I, I do have to defer about knowing Georgia politics a lot better than I do, that uh, a, a healthy stimulus will come about. But at the end of the day, the Biden administration, in many respects, is a, is a conservative administration, conservative in the broadly philosophical sense of conserving an American status quo. Um, and not doing anything really to change um, things for the average household, for the average worker. And I think that's an incredible problem per the potential comeback of Trumpism, number one. And, of course, I don't believe it's uh, responsive to the needs, the real needs of real people in our society. Um, and that even extends to the planet and the climate. I mean, simply put, more has to be done. Yeah, that um, was actually sort of like the... Secondary question I should have asked you, this last question, uh, when I asked you about uh, Biden, one of the things that I'm skeptical about, or at least I question is, you know, he is trying very hard to be sort of as he says, everyone's president, right? And to appeal and to appease all of America, conservative, uh, progressive, and uh, moderate, etc. What I have come to see in the last sort of 20 years is that Republicans are not willing to meet anyone across the aisle. Uh, halfway, 20% of the way, or even 2% of the way. Right. It's just their way or nothing. Right. And Democrats have sort of drank this Kool-Aid of let's, uh, let's work and let's meet them in the middle and such, and it just hasn't worked. And what we witnessed this last four years, um, not just the behavior of Trump, but also Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and, you know, William Barr and such is that they basically do what they want to do, sort of ignoring uh, half the country. My fear is that the Biden administration will try so hard to be sort of a centrist. And where does that put progressive values? And where does that put so many things that have always been on the back burner, so many issues and the way they are handled we've been told that it's too risky that's sort of going too far uh, something that republicans are not afraid to do right republicans are able to push their agenda no matter what so i'm that's one of the things that i'm skeptical about and i do agree with you um, as far as you know the status quo of the average american the working class middle class the disintegrating middle class and where, what's going to happen with that. Because I also think that there's there are so many very imperative and sort of alarming things on Joe Biden's agenda that he's had to address. I don't know how much energy he can put into progressive things or, you know, or, or just matters that are not like coronavirus and national security, and as you said, the State Department, which I think has become kind of a joke under Secretary Pompeo. So that's just something, I mean, you know, obviously I voted for Joe Biden and all of that, but, and you're, you know, obviously an expert at this, is what will come in terms of like progressive values and things that, you know, Bernie Sanders has been talking about, you know, so that's sort of my two cents about that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Alan Minsky, the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. Um, yeah, and I think I do think that um, when you look at American society um, and at the to take a phrase from Bernie Sanders at the at the end of the day, as Bernie would always say, we have a series of pretty severe endemic problems that um the average American household lives precariously close to and has a strong relationship with, which are, you know, low wages, a broken health care system. We have endemic problems in the society from, uh, you know, wealth inequality, uh, low wages, uh, job insecurities, a broken health care system. Uh, obviously, we have a homeless crisis. We have tremendous poverty and exactly where that level is going to be coming out of it pandemic economic crisis is really not that clear, but we know it's really severe at the moment. 
uh, with all the people even uh, experiencing hunger across the country. Uh, then, of course, we have the climate crisis. We have a absolutely imbalanced and fundamentally racist criminal justice system. We have mass incarceration. And all of these matters um, are things that you know real Americans have close experiences to. And uh, the people know that they want them to change and they don't anticipate that they will change. Uh, and then what happens is uh, the default position of disengagement. The two parties are the same. Um, and, of course, the progressive uh, wing of the Democratic Party, I think, is the one political tendency and it is an ascendant political tendency, of course, over the last five years. Uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is much stronger than it was five years ago, which is also something that changes the equation right now for, you know, where politics are in the country. The progressive caucus led by Pramila Jayapal is stronger than ever. Um, and obviously, then there are the squad members who are very outspoken and really bring the progressive point of view into the uh, center stage of national political discourse. Um, but again, the fact that uh, it, it's likely that on those huge social endemic problems that afflict American society, there won't be much change. I think on the one hand, of course, that will keep the progressive uh, political um, voice in the national discourse. But, you know, we're not into this for political power. We're into this to change society and make people's lives better. And in the short term, I don't expect a lot of movement on those fronts. So I will say, as I, I did say a little while ago, there's an opportunity now. And, to, and I think the, there are two very important things that are going to be played out over the next two years where I think Biden will have an opportunity to do more. And it's within his range to do more. And it'll be good if he does more for everybody, including progressives in the party. Um, and those those are on, of course, a stimulus in response to the economic crisis. Of course, I do hope that we achieve herd immunity through the vaccines by spring. But that's not the second point. The second point would be infrastructure. Infrastructure is the one word that it seems like Republicans can't exactly turn off. Uh, infrastructure proposals are essential then, given the configuration of Congress and the inability to make broader moves through Congress, given the power of the Republicans now in both chambers. Uh, infrastructure um, is the one space where we can achieve uh, the greening of the energy system. And of course, it can also be create a lot of jobs, employment, and also address some of the failings that produce the endemic problems that I just ran through a checklist of. So yeah. I would look to uh, trying to push for as much progress as possible through infrastructure and through the stimulus and then go from there. Um, but I think those will be two massive agenda items uh, for the Biden administration coming in in terms of domestic policy in particular. That was great because you answered what was going to be my last question, which is what should we focus on that we haven't discussed or, you know, aside from coronavirus and of course, Georgia, you know, the January 5th election would be really important. But before we go, just have one last question is what uh, what haven't I brought up that you'd like people to think about or just emphasize? Well, I think it would be, of course, there are the, of the checklist of endemic crises, every one of those is essential. So healthcare is essential. Obviously, the racist criminal justice system is essential and it's going to continue to be brought up and we need, need, need to see change. We can't have that issue consistently glad-handed by politicians and then nothing changes. But at the end of the day, also, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up climate. Um, you know, this is <laughs> COVID actually, at least temporarily, uh, turned out to be the biggest asset yet in terms of uh, the era in which we've understood that there's a global warming occurring. And in terms of the pouring of carbon into the atmosphere. There was a slight decline because of the shutting down, relative shutting down of the global economy. Um, but there, by all evidence, it's just going to go right back. That has to change for the sake of humanity going forward. This is a true existential crisis for the species. Uh, we have no idea the points, the sort of tipping point logic of the way the global climate will respond to the increasing influx of carbon into the atmosphere. The United States and the federal government of the United States is probably the best position, probably almost certainly the best position institution in the world to really address this in terms of research and development of green energy technologies. The United States has the largest scientific university research capital base in the world by an order of magnitude. Um, so we really do need to see movement on that. 
it's been a real pleasure wow. talking with you, Vic. You too, Alan. Do you have any um, call to action as the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America? Yeah, people should check out pdamerica.org. We are launching really one of the most ambitious uh, legislative uh, agendas in the history of any progressive organization. I look, I encourage people to check it out, to participate in our project, and you can learn more about it at pdamerica.org. Fantastic. Alan, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Vic. You too. That was Alan Minsky, the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America, as well as a former program director at KPFK. Thank you for being on the show, Alan. Much appreciated. The Blunt Post with Vic. I was interviewed by Brave New Hollywood a few days ago, and I'm going to play the interview for you. They wanted to interview me after I publicly called out Cher for ignoring the plight of the Armenian people of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh. So Brave New Hollywood was curious as to the reasoning behind it and what exactly happened. So uh, here it is. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Brave New Hollywood. Today, my guest is Vic Jeremy, host of The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM and the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. Vic, how are you? I am well, uh, Henrik. Glad to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Vic, I wanted to have you on to ask about something that happened on your uh, program this week. You called out a famous superstar on your program, and I just wanted to ask you more about that. Uh, you called out Cher and for, for, something, for something that we think she should have given a timelier attention to, safe to say. I wanted to ask you in your, to explain in your words why you decided to call her out. Yeah, absolutely. So... Just to give it uh, context, you know, I'm a huge Cher fan. I have been throughout my entire life, I think. Um, and I've written about her. I've paid tribute to her. I've I met her a couple of times. Uh, but I believe that we, we need to hold everyone accountable, not just those that we disagree with. So, um, and this was something that was a, a big deal. Um, so some of you may know that on September 27th, uh, the countries of Azerbaijan and Turkey unleashed a genocidal war and uh, ethnic cleansing on uh, Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, which is part of Armenia for millennia, just indiscriminately uh, shelling and killing civilians, um, breaking all kinds of international uh, laws with banned weapons and such. So. About a week after the, the war, if you will, it's more like an attack uh, started, I was contacted by a friend of mine who's an entertainment publicist, and she said that uh, she'd been asked if she can do something to bring this, uh, this situation to the attention of international media, US media, etc. And so she wanted to bring me on board because I'm Armenian American and I've been very vocal about this. So. We decided that we're going to produce uh, celebrity PSAs, uh, a very quick one minute uh, PSAs that celebrities can do on their phone, just to say that they stand with Artsakh and Armenia and human rights, uh, you know, and, and to talk about the humanitarian aspect of this catastrophe. So we sent out uh, requests and we immediately received um, uh, goes from Kim Kardashian, Serge, Serge Tankian, Ed Begley Jr., Sally Kirkland, and many others, and Congressman Adam Schiff. And I contacted Cher's publicist, Liz Rosenberg, and told her about the situation. And Liz got back to me and said, uh, Cher is not um, doing any appearances, events, videos, Zoom, anything like that. Uh, if I want, I can send her uh, some copy and artwork and uh, she'll forward it to share for consideration to post on social media. So I thought, well, I'll take whatever I can get. So I prepared those and sent it to Liz and uh, never heard back. I follow share on all her social media handles. So I never saw her for over five weeks of this, this really catastrophic war 
um, for her to say a word. And Cher is always on Twitter, and we know she talks about politics and current events. I followed up with Liz, never heard back. And uh, I was just really disappointed that uh, as, a, as an Armenian American herself, who, and to be fair, who has uh, done great stuff in the past, for this, the most important one, where it had to do with uh, innocent thousands being killed, she stayed silent. So about four or five days after the war uh, ended with the ceasefire, a very egregious ceasefire, when it was too late, she finally did a PSA, not our PSA, but a different one. Um, but at that point, it did, made no difference. It didn't make um, you know, sense to even do it then because it was over. And, uh, and I think she did it probably because she was ridiculed for not doing the PSA that we produced. We thought, okay, well, Cher Dib wasn't on board. And then about four or five days later, um, I noticed that she was in Pakistan. Now, she's been talking about this elephant uh, in Pakistan and finding refuge for the elephant and sending you know, all kinds of aid to, to it um, for a while. But she went to Pakistan to see the, to the transfer of the elephant from Pakistan to Cambodia. And you would, you would ask me like, so what's wrong with that? Of course, we're all animal lovers and a lot of people would do that. But what's egregious about it is this. Pakistan is the only country in the world that has not um, recognized Armenia. To make things worse, uh, Azerbaijan in Turkey hired mercenaries to kill Armenians. And those mercenaries came from uh, ISIS, uh, Syria, Libya, as well as Pakistan. And they were paid $2,000 a month to kill Armenians, including civilians, and $100 bonus for every severed head. So for Cher to go to Pakistan, a country that one, uh, does not recognize Armenia, and two, has supplied mercenaries to kill, right now when this war is supposedly ended with a ceasefire, but there's so much um, human rights violations happening right now and crimes against humanity, Armenian um, prisoners of war are being tortured, they are being, uh, mutilated, their ears are being cut off. Uh, for her to do this, it was egregious. So uh, that's it. That's the, the most of it. So Vic, let's take a listen to the original segment that aired on your show on KPFK FM here in Los Angeles. Sounds good. Anyone that knows me knows I'm probably one of Cher's like top 1,000 fans. And that says a lot because she has like an army of fans. Of course, a few days after being told that Cher is not doing any videos on camera, events, etc., she was um, at the Billboard Music Awards giving an award to Garth Brooks, which I thought was sort of odd. Also, you know, Cher tweets daily a lot for those that are following her know this. For five weeks, when Turkey and Azerbaijan uh, launched a genocidal campaign and ethnic cleansing of Armenians uh, using mercenaries, um, ISIS mercenaries, Syrian, Libyan, Pakistani, and slaughtering people, she never tweeted a thing or on her other social media. And for those of you who don't know, I should have said that Cher is Armenian-American. So I was just, I could not understand it. So after having not heard back from her publicist, you know, I basically tweeted to her a couple of times, said, you know, come on, we are, you know, this is about saving lives. You can't just do one tweet. Finally, after... Armenia was basically forced to sign an egregious ceasefire agreement that was brokered by Russia. Uh, she did a PSA, not our PSA, the one that my colleague and I produced, but a different one. But it was too late. It meant nothing at that point because uh, it was all over. Um, 
Artsakh lost 75% of its land, and uh, thousands of Armenian soldiers uh, had died, and it meant nothing at that point. Vic, since that peace aired, what has been the reaction, uh, the aftermath? Um, I've just received a lot of correspondence, emails, messages from people who were very grateful that I did that. I, but people are grateful, you know. Um, Armenia is a country of three million, so um, on this international scale, um, not a lot of uh, attention is being paid to it. It's not being covered by press. So um, people are grateful that, uh, that uh, me or anyone else would talk about it, write about it, bring attention to it. Why is it important for celebrities to give their voices to causes and issues, you think? Well, because people pay attention. People want to know what their favorite celebrities are saying. Um, you know, it's an automatic platform. They have a platform. And uh, especially those like Cher, who's a superstar. Yeah. And people pay attention. The press covers it. The press may not cover a simple media alert or a press release. But they will cover if Cher does something. Now, imagine if Cher instead of going to Pakistan, had gone to Armenia to visit these families, to visit these soldiers who have lost their legs and their arms. Um, if she had uh, visited Artsakh, you know, that would have been an incredible opportunity. Um, world media would have been on that. So it, it matters, it's always mattered. Vic, thank you so much for joining me for this chat and we'll see you again, hopefully, on Brave New Hollywood. Thanks for having me, Henrik. I appreciate it. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.